Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, welcome to our program on sexuality and dementia. My name is Kelly Kirkpatrick. I'm one of the associate project directors for a program called Advancing Competency for Geriatric Care in Rural Northern New England. Um, it's a mouthful, we call it ACGC for short. And we're um, putting on this program in partnership with the Northern New England Geriatric Education Center. Um, we're both funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration. And, um, HRSA for short. We, they do like to collect information about participants um, that come to our program since they provide our funding. So thank you for filling out the <laughs> forms that you've been either sent or given today. Um, that helps us to keep our funding so that they know who we're reaching with our programs. Um, our goal is to enhance the care of older adults by offering comprehensive education programs targeted to healthcare professionals um, and also family caregivers and we um, emphasize evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. So thank you very much for being here. I'd like to make a few announcements um, and go over a few housekeeping things and make sure no one has any questions about those things before we begin. Uh, regarding educational credit for the program, in your folder you'll see that there's a credit claim form that you'll need to complete and return before you leave today. And you'll see there's a section where you need to check which box um, applies to you for which kind of credit you need. And for all the disciplines except for social work, you'll then receive, um, you'll be able to access an online transcript within one month of the program. And um, you can find instructions for accessing that um, online transcript on the back of one of the forms in your packet. So, do make sure that you fill this out and complete it and that your email address is legible um, before and leave it with us before you leave so that you will get that online transcript. The only thing that's a little bit different is for social workers. Um, make sure you check that social work box and make sure especially that your email address is legible because instead of the online transcript, you'll receive an email certificate if you're a social worker. So it's especially important that we have your correct email address and that it's legible. Um, and like I said, that should be available within a month of the program. Let's see. Also, regarding slides from today's program, you should have received an email about how to access those online. Uh, you should have access to those for two weeks from today so that you can print or refer back to them if you'd like to. If you didn't receive an email or you have concerns about being able to access those slides, feel free to check in with us at the registration table during one of the breaks. We'll make sure we have your correct email address and that everything is set up for you so that you can access those slides if you'd like to. Um, I'd also like to announce that neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. Any product, service, or company being discussed or displayed in conjunction with this activity does not imply that there's a real or implied endorsement by the American Nurses Credentialing Center or Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Um, other little housekeeping items, restrooms are located if you go out these doors to the right and then take a left, they'll be on your left. And if you have any cell phones or pages with you, if you could please put them to silent or vibrate now, we would appreciate it. Does anyone have any questions about any of these housekeeping matters before we begin? Okay, great. 
Well, we're thrilled today to have with us Dr. Gail Dahl from Kansas State University, where she's an associate professor and the director of the Center on Aging. She earned her PhD in Lifespan Human Development at Kansas State University and has completed extensive work in promoting person-centered care in nursing homes. And her work has included addressing issues of sexuality for older adults. Her research in this area has been published in journals such as the Journal of Gerontological Nursing and the Gerontologist. She also authored the book Sexuality and Long-Term Care, Understanding and Supporting the Needs of Older Adults. She's received awards for her teaching, and she also was selected as a fellow of the Association of Gerontology and Higher Education in 2013. She's spoken nationally on successful aging. I also learned that she just recently went skydiving with a group that included a 93-year-old woman who had skydiving on her bucket list. <laughs> um, and we, so we're thrilled to have Gail here with all her experience and her good stories. So please join me in welcoming, welcoming Gail Dahl. Thank you, Kelly. Among many of her other talents, Kelly's a great travel agent. Um, so I got here from Kansas really successfully, um, but I was reminded every time I speak of one time that wasn't quite so good. And I tell you this story because I know that when you can identify with a speaker with maybe one of her more embarrassing moments, that maybe you'll enjoy me a little bit more throughout the morning. So. I was going to Lake Jen, Alaska to an older adult conference, and I was flying from uh, Kansas into Detroit and then from Detroit into Asheville. And it used to be when I traveled, it was rare enough that I would dress up to go on these flights. But on this particular flight, I said, darned if I'm just not going to be comfortable. And so this dates me. I put on a pair of stirrup pants. <laughs> Anybody remember what stirrup pants are? Yeah, they were stretchy pants that were very comfortable, and they had a little strap that went under your foot. Uh, I don't know why. It elongated your legs or something. It made you look sexy. <laughs> so I wore these pants, and on the first flight, I was going, oh, my God, that woman next to me looks so uncomfortable. I feel great. But then, when I got to Detroit, it was a little puddle hopper plane that went into Asheville. And we went down on the tarmac, and we had to climb stairs to get into the plane. And you've done this before. Well, that first step, well, there was a line of us. We were standing in line. It was my turn to go, and that first step was higher than I expected. My stretch pants were going this way, all right, but they wouldn't go that way. And I couldn't get my foot up on that first step. So college-educated woman that I was, I reached back behind me and unzipped my zipper just a little bit. And so I took my other foot and tried to get up on that step. And again, I couldn't do anything. I was starting to get embarrassed. I was wondering if I was going to have to call an attendant. And before I could say anything, I felt these hands under my bum pushing me up on the step. And I turned around, and I glared at this guy. He was a great big guy with a 10-gallon hat on his head. And I said, what gave you the right to do that? And he said, well, ma'am, after you unzip my fly two times. <laughs> I thought I had every right.
to tell that story to every fall and every spring when I started a new class. And if the class laughed, I knew it was going to be a good year. There were always two or three girls in the class that came up to me after class and said, did that really happen? And if you're in doubt, no, it didn't, but I sure as hell wish it would have. <laughs> um, you know, flying is just really pretty boring. So um, I keep hoping that that will happen someday. And, and in effect, it hasn't. OK, so here's what's going to happen today. Um, I do not lecture. I have never lectured. I have like two and a half hours with you. And I have never spent that long talking in my life. So this is going to be really interactive. I've got lots of information, but I've walked around the room, and you have lots of information, too. So I'm counting on you to pull through for me and, and to come up with some of the great ideas that I can't fill in. I am told that I'm an expert in this field. That's because I've been looking at it, reading about it, talking to people for a long time. But I don't have every perspective. And so that's where you come in. So I want to start out today with you acting as if you are a staff member in a nursing home. So I want to do a simulation that's going to get you there. This whole presentation today is framed from that viewpoint. And so just to get you there, you're going to plan a party. So you don't have to do this all by yourself. We're going to put you in groups. And I'm going to get you up and have you standing for a little while so that you get to know some of the people around you. It's going to make it a lot more fun for you today. So we're going to have you stand up. And I'm passing out your instructions. You, as a group, have five minutes to plan your party. And then we're going to do a little bit of a discussion after that. So find your group. Um, I think I'm going to need about, uh, take two tables and join them together on every group. And there's a few people in the end that can join one of the other tables. So um, Anita, would you help me pass this
Okay, we got to end this party. All right, yeah, we got everybody talking. That was a goal, but also another goal is to get you to stop talking for a moment so I can ask you some questions. Okay, now you were to spend some time as a team planning a resident activity because that's what this is really all about. Some people could call this a meaningful activity. So I want to go through this list of questions and as we work through this, I think you'll get the idea about how we want to frame today. So how do you feel about the resident hosting this party? Is this a good idea, bad idea? Thumbs up in the back. Complicated, it depends. Okay, what's complicated about it? Policies of the facility. Okay, that needs to be addressed. The children, okay, over here. We had 
was there going to be a financial piece to this because at Tupperware parties there are, and so they <coughs> pursue the institution's policy on that. And that the other thing was, was there a room that was large enough to accommodate the people we wanted? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, where is your mind? <laughs> um, because we, did, we didn't want anyone to feel left out. Okay, very good. Okay, so we're having issues about family, whether they're concerned about these types of parties, about the cost of the items purchased, and about the size of the room that will host the party. Okay, other concerns? Oh, okay, got to be careful about the refreshments. Good. Yes? Okay, so it needs to be considered on an individual basis, whether the person having the party has the capacity to understand what they're doing, and also you probably have to think about the attendees. You know, are you going to invite everybody to this party? Okay. This is important for a story I'm going to tell you in a little bit. Um, next question. What role would you play in facilitating this kind of a party? Guide. The guide? Okay. Or a counselor? Okay. Uh, okay, the activities person might be the planner. Okay. Finding the location. Are any of you in this room uncomfortable with planning a party such as this? Okay. Thanks for being honest about that. And sometimes it's hard to figure out how to take care of, student, of uh, residents' needs. Okay. How do you think this party will be received by other residents in the facility? Divis it could be divisive. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Yeah. Okay. You all think that? What's that? It's just like bingo. Okay, I agree. Yes. Right, and, and think how many times that activities like this are canceled because of questions like that. Who will feel left out if we don't, if we don't invite them? Okay. I mean, the solution would be, it says, our residents is asked if we help organize sick party in the home she wants to invite community living friends, move it off site. Okay, all right. I don't know if you caught that, but I've been playing a ruse on you. Okay, so half the room thinks they're planning a Tupperware party, and half the room thinks they're planning a sex toy party. <laughs> Eat trick. Okay. Okay, but now do you get it? Should there be a difference? 
Should you have, should you feel differently about one party than the other? Some of the questions that have arisen would be appropriate for either. Who do you invite to a Tupperware party? Who's going to feel left out? Who's going to do the planning? How much how expense is involved? All of those things are typical and the same. And how many times have you heard of a Tupperware party or a sex toy party at a retirement community or in a, in a nursing home? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> I, I've, had, I've had one group say maybe it could be a used Tupperware party and you could just exchange it. Uh, okay, so the final question is, how would you try to resolve these concerns? So if you, if, okay, so recently in the news, there was a, a stripper party. I don't know if any of you had heard about this, but it went viral, a picture of an older woman who had dementia who was putting money in a stripper's shorts. And if you saw the picture, she enjoyed it. I think she did. Why wouldn't she? <laughs> Okay, but the point was that her son saw the picture, he wasn't told about the party, and he was irate, and he sued the facility. And it came out later that I believe his wife was the one that sent his mother to the party. So I think there was a little bit of family confusion involved. Yeah, yeah just think about that for a minute. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so... Um, so actually, I was called by McKnight's to ask what my opinion was on this particular case. And in that case, I said, well, um, you know, full disclosure is probably important. If there's going to be something like this, you probably want the family to know ahead of time. But I really, truly believe that people with dementia can experience pleasure in the same way that the rest of us can, and that if this was an activity that she was enjoying, then there seemed to be no harm in it. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about that as, as we go along because um, sometimes the family's feelings need to be taken into consideration, not just because they're worried about protocol or dignity or those kind of things, but because they still remember mom as somebody different. And so it's really a good idea to talk to them about the potential for things like this happening long before they do and to provide education to those families about the needs for sexuality and about the needs for intimacy and what those benefits for the residents might be. So that's all very, very important. I hope you got the idea for around this party about how we need to think about uh, sexuality in a normal light, like we do Tupperware. Uh, because it is a normal part of aging, a normal part of all of our personality. So let's move forward. Can I ask one question? Yes. What if the resident does not want family to know? They feel like it's not their business. Okay, very good question. The question was what if the resident doesn't want families to know? Um, that resident is obviously a competent person and it is making their own decisions. And in my view, now I don't know what the regulations are here, but in my view, if you're a competent person to make decisions, they can tell you that you're not going to tell the family and you won't tell the family. Um, we had, that question will come up, I'll tell you about a survey that we gave earlier. And we're finding that many of our nursing homes do tell family members if it represents a change in the care plan. So if there's a romantic relationship that develops, they feel like they have to tell the family because that's a major change in the life of the resident. Um, and that's an interpretation of the regulations. 
that um, you can be much more free about how you interpret that. Uh, HIPAA violation to tell the family. Yeah. Um, if it's their personal, I mean, it's part of their care, part of their care plan. Yeah. That's all patient related. So I'm not. I guess I feel like there's a disconnect between what we should be telling family and ruining the privacy of that resident. Some of you caregivers in the room, what do you think? Um, so we're talking about an alert-oriented, competent person who is beginning a romantic relationship. Yeah, that's the que that's the question that we ask. And uh, in forty percent of the nursing homes that we asked, they said yes, we would tell the family because we feel like it represents a major change in the life of the resident. Um, they said you change the regulations, I won't do it anymore. But they're afraid that something will come up and then the residents, uh, the family members will come back. You know, everybody in this room has to just face the fact that most of the care we provide for nursing home residents is based on what the family members want. We're, we're afraid, we're afraid. But we get into that whole issue of children denying parents' sexuality. Right. It starts at a very young age and I think it extends much, much further into adulthood. Right, right. Next. Okay. Uh, really good thoughts. Many of these things are going to come out throughout the presentation. Um, one of the things that I want to do today is do what I call chunking. That means I got lots of different subjects to care cover, and I'm going to do a little bit at a time. We'll discuss or talk if we feel like we need to, and then we'll move on to the next section. I'll be doing a lot of repetition, too. Um, our recent uh, book read in the Center on Aging was Brain Rules, and one of the brain rules is the only way you learn is by repetition. So I'm going to come back around to some of the same themes over and over again today. So I want to start with the assumption that we all know that sexuality is good for you and that there are health and psychological benefits that come from it, and that happens at any age. So that's an assumption that I hope we all have in this room and that we can move forward with. And then I want to start with some definitions. So when I use the word long-term care, I don't mean nursing homes. I do know nursing homes better than just about any other form of long-term care, but long-term care for us at the Center on Aging represents a continuum of care from informal care by family members all the way to formal care in a skilled care facility. So in between, there could be board and care homes, there could be assisted living, there could be any number of variations. Um, last night, I talked to a group of older people from Kendall, and that's obviously one of uh, the nicer variations that uh, continuing care and retirement community includes a wide range or a continuum of that um, uh, long-term care. 
So I'm going to also try to tell you some stories throughout. So when I'm talking about uh, some of these issues, um, while it might sound like I'm talking mostly about nursing homes, I'm talking about the range. So for instance, um, after I wrote my book, a uh, high school uh, uh, classmate of mine came to me and said, um, I've been wanting to talk to you because her father-in-law and mother-in-law required 24-7 care. They were trying to keep them in their home, and they were um, having a caregiver live with them. And the caregivers had been complaining because the father was on the Internet watching porn. He had dementia, and um, so they said, what should we do? And I said, um, well, does he uh, act out on behaviors? Is he aggressive toward his caregivers? And they said, oh, no, he doesn't do anything with it. And I said, then close the door. And, and they were surprised by that. Uh, close the door? Can't, shouldn't we be making him stop? And they said, at this period in his life, if he has dementia, it's not a behavior that you can change. And it's actually a normal behavior. And if he's not being aggressive because of it, there's nothing wrong with it. So they've started closing the door. It reminded me of a story that happened to me years earlier when my brother called me one time and he said, Gail, I keep, walking, I keep coming home and I'm finding Zach on the internet looking at porn. What should I do? And I said, make more noise before you come in the house. <laughs> you know, sometimes we blow things out of proportion that we really don't need to. We think we're supposed to be upset about, about pornography, but then if people aren't using it in the, improperly, that's um, not such a big deal. So, moving on. Intimacy is the next word I want to talk about. Intimacy is really the talk I'd rather have. Everybody needs intimacy. It is a basic human need. I, I think there are some people who are isolated and who um, choose to live apart from other people, but for the majority of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we need human contact in some way or another. Um, I told the group last night, some of you are going to have to hear some of my stories more than once, but um, I have recommended, I think this is also in my book, an activity called the STARS activity. And it came from schools, actually. And in some schools, they realized that some kids were viewed as outcasts, that they didn't really have relationships. So they put all of the names, and let's say we're still in the nursing home, we put all the names of all the residents in the nursing home on a board in the staff room. And then we give everybody, all the staff, all the housekeepers, the bus drivers, um, stars. And we have them put stars next to the people that they have weekly interactions with. And you will see that a third of those residents get lots of stars because they're the lovable ones, the ones that the staff want to be around, the ones they want to take care of because they're gracious and they're sweet and they say nice things. And then there's a third of them that get some stars and then there's a third of those residents who will get almost no stars at all. They're the untouchables, and they're sort of untouchable because they, don't, they act like they don't want you around. And they're sort of untouchable because they're grumpy and grouchy, and they advocate for themselves maybe more than you would like for them to. So what we recommend in nursing homes is that everyone on staff pick one of those persons who has no stars, and they spend at least one minute or two every day with that person creating an intimate relationship with them and just see what happens. 
So I, I contend that all of us need intimate relationships. But the reason I don't have talks about intimate relationships is you can't go much further than that. You say everybody needs it, but then sexual expression is the way it, is represent, it presents itself. So that's what we talk about. I use the word sexuality a lot. Um, and unfortunately, most of us, when we hear the word sexuality, think about sexual intercourse. And that's not appropriate. Sexuality really is part of your personality. So it's the way you wear your hair. Older women still want to be attractive. They still go and get their hair done once a week. That's part of their sexuality. Um, it's represented in uh, touch, in all kinds of ways to show that you care about somebody. Um, sexual intercourse, as you get older, doesn't seem to be as prevalent and as relevant and meaningful to people as touch, as companionship, um, as different ways of expressing your sexuality. So I want you to be able to think about that in a, in a wide variation. Okay, so, um, so I have a friend who's 94, and she keeps asking me, so why do you think that this is such a relevant topic? She says, us old women, we don't care about sex anymore. But this is Marion. Marion and I go to lunch about once every two weeks. And I decided to make her a friend when I went to um, the nursing home or to the retirement community. And um, I had a class that was there, and this intergenerational group, we were talking about sexuality and aging, and I showed a vi video called Still Doing It. And Still Doing It is a great video about eight or nine older women and uh, still expressing themselves sexually. And I showed the video, although I was really anxious about one scene that was some black and white photos of a 72-year-old woman with her 27-year-old lover, and they were doing oral sex. And I just couldn't see myself showing it to that mixed group. And so I fast-forward through that part of the video. And Marion came to me after the class. I didn't know her at the time. And she said, can I check that video out? And so she checked it out, and she had her girlfriends come over, and they watched the video. Since that time, she's the person that keeps telling me, we're not interested. When the Shades of Grey books came out, she read all three of them in one week. <laughs> she watches The Bachelor and uh, fervently tells me about all of The Bachelor's physical characteristics. She's attracted to younger men and actually has a fellow who's in his 50s that takes her out to dinner. And while he's probably not sexually attracted to her, she definitely is to him. So um, if this is an email she just sent me yesterday. It says, Viagra, come to Viagra. Agra is where the uh, Taj Mahal is. You'll see man's greatest erection for a woman. <laughs> and this was the email that she sent me yesterday. It's not unlike her to send these kind of things on. So it, it's, it's, while she says older women aren't sexual and don't have uh, uh, sexuality on their mind, she's wrong. She, she, if there was a guy that came to her door and swept her off on a white horse, she would be just as giddy and in love as anybody in this room and any 17-year-old. So that's kind of my framework. All right, we're going to do um, a short video now. This is a video that some of you saw last night 
Um, it's called Backseat Bingo, and it's a cartoon feature that helps you to get in the framework of, yeah, older people really do care about this. <laughs> det är ju vant. <laughs> the most romantic thing is the moment when I ask her, do you want to go to bed with me? The first time I said no. So uh, a few days later, I asked her again, and she agreed. <laughs> this was the most romantic. Wasn't it the most romantic thing? My name is David Bielobroda. My name is Ruth Cooper and my age is 70. I was born in 1980. My age is 92. My name is Sunga Greisman Rubin and I'm 84, going on 85. How old am I? <laughs> Well, I truly believe you stay young because of sex. At 18, we just wanted a sex object. At 75, you may still want sex. You're not sure you're going to get it, but you're looking for comfort. I've always wanted romance in my life. Really love, you know, and I think you need it all your life. You need it all your life. You need to be touched, you need to be felt, you need to be hugged need to be kissed. Companionship is, is very important. So we cover it up with, well, I don't need men in my life, and I, I'm past uh, my desires. Baloney. I don't think you ever get past your sexual desires. I, I adore it, and I am not ashamed of it. Yeah, he doesn't look at it. He's a very sensual man. Very. Listen, I've had so many boyfriends, I can't even count them on my fingers and toes. Most of the men my age or better are either dead, looking for a nurse or a purse, or um, sick. I'm short, reserved, self-conscious, um, eager to please, I'm compassionate, a good listener. I used to always look for a good-looking man and good dancers. That's what counted. And dress well. Oh, God forbid they shouldn't dress she well. She would be a non-smoker. Yes, pretty, beautiful also. He has to have his shit together. Kindness, consideration. Sparkle in their eyes. That tips well. And no Republicans, please. But there is something about a senior citizen community that you realize that you are mortal. You know, you see too many people around you and you know that someday you're gonna say bye-bye too. Unfortunately, uh, I've outlived uh, just about every one of my friends. You know, at this age, there isn't much time for independence. You know, you just think the, uh, there's just a few years left and you wanna do as much as possible togetherness. When my husband died, he was 52, I took off my wedding ring and I said to myself, I wonder what's around the corner for me.
And I think instead of sitting and saying, oh, he died, da 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 I always looked forward. The person in my age who has the capacity of doing sex, this is the highest thing in the world, the greatest achievement in the world. And the pleasure is unbelievable. This business of saying a man uses a woman for a one-nighter, what about a woman using a man? Is that terrible? Kushmir and Tochasarai. You know what that means? I hate to tell you. Kiss my you know what. <laughs> it is, when you say it in English, it sounds bad, right? But in Jewish, it's kind of cute. And someone says something to you, yeah, Kushmir and Tochasarai, kind of cute, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about it a little bit. You know, for the first time, I've watched that probably 12 times. For the first time, I was watching that through new gender-related eyes. Think about the characteristics that the women were describing in a, in a partner and the characteristics that the men were describing. What did you see that was different? Pardon me? Practical. Practical? Okay. Uh, many of them are thinking about, you know, how much caregiving am I going to have to provide? The men were needier, you know, they just want physical companionship. Uh, women were a little bit more picky. No Republicans, please. Yeah, so um, what else did you feel? How come you think that the, the people did this video with cartoon characters? Okay. Right, okay. Uh, thanks for being honest about that because many times we try to not show that we have a little bit of a bias about sexuality and aging, especially in a group like this. But yes, if they would have shown the real people saying those things, we would have been feeling a bit more uncomfortable about it. Um, so by putting cartoon characters on it, we can take the time to listen to what they're saying and to say, oh my gosh, I get it. And then when they show the pictures of the real people at the end, you go, oh, this is real. This is, they didn't make this up. These people really did say that. And that makes it a delight and a, a more meaningful experience. Any other reasons why they might have chosen not to have real people for this little five-minute video? Right. Right. So they did a good job of conveying that sexuality is normal, that everybody wants it to some degree or another, and that this, these folks are looking for it and finding it sometimes hard to find. Okay, any other response that you have for this particular video? Would you use this for your staff? Um, it's online, actually. Look up Backseat bi bi uh, Bingo. 
Uh, just Google it and you'll be able to find the full five minute video and you'll be able to share it with your staff. I believe that it's, when we do a staff training, we start with this. It normalizes sexuality and it makes people feel a lot more comfortable if you were, before you go forward. Um, last night I shared with uh, uh, the group about social age and I think it's probably a good idea to talk about that with this group as well. I feel kind of bound to this podium, and I like to walk around, but um, I'll try to stand here and stand still. But um, we talk about chronological age far too much. So Mary Pfeiffer is a psychologist who has written uh, Another Country, which is a book about communication with older adults. And um, it's really a great book. But she suggests that instead of using young uh, young old as an age division chronologically from 65 to 75 and then old old from then on up. She says we should be using health as the divisor. So you can be young old as long as you're healthy and old old once your health prevents you from doing the things that you want to do. And I experienced this firsthand with my grandmother. She was the kind of woman that even into her 70s and 80s, she'd sit in a chair and put her toe in her mouth to show off. Um, so she could do lots of amazing things. And then she had a, a leg surgery. I think it was hip surgery. And I came home for Christmas. I lived in Kansas, and she lived in Iowa. And she, my mom was taking care of her, and I thought, Granny's not going to live much longer. She just looked awful. And then she recovered from that surgery, and the next time I saw her, she was back to her young old persona again. So it is possible that maybe we've been thinking about chronological age really in the wrong way. I was telling the group that I almost punched my best friend on Friday night because she suggested that old people shouldn't be driving. And when we have these conversations with my intergenerational group, the older adults just bristle because there are some people that can drive better at 100 than people can at 20. And chronological age is not a good way to measure aptitude for anything, including sexuality. So um, we had a conversation about that. Chronological age is really only significant and important when you want to get your first driver's license or your first beer. After that, it really shouldn't matter at all. You shouldn't have to tell anybody what your age is. Um, the next age that I want you to know about is called psychological age. And your psychological age is usually the age that you tell people you feel like when they ask you the question. How old do you feel? And most people are stuck at 37 to 39 years of age. Even the 90-year-olds, sometimes you're going to find, um, especially with women, they lie about their age until they hit 90 and then they inflate it. So there's something about being 90 plus that is an advantage, but being anything but that, you usually downgrade how old you are. So um, psychological age really affects your biological age. Your biological age is usually determined as the number of years of life you have left, or sometimes you get a factor from something called real age or some health care screenings that will make you have an age that sometimes is younger than your chronological age. So I did this once when I was a jock and I was uh, working at YMCA's. We had a health screening that began with 
with a screening that you filled out. It was about your health history and your habits. You all know in this room that only 30% of your longevity is based on genetics. The 70% is in your hands. So if you have people that live long, it's going to be to your advantage because of that 30%. The rest of it is all up to you. Uh, avoiding disease, committing to do healthy habits, those are important. So I filled all that out, and I had one person in my family that had cancer, and I had a couple of things that I answered, maybe too honestly on that, because after I did the physical part of it, they put me on a treadmill, I had to run, and the person measuring all the physical parts says, your biological age is going to be so young, I can't wait to see it. But when they factored in my health history and the fact that, yes, I've skydived and I hang glided, when they asked the question, did you hang glide over water or rocks, I knew I was in trouble because I went over both of them. Um, hang gliding, did you always buckle your seat belt? Um, do you wear a helmet when you ride a motorcycle? All of those things factored in, and I did have a brother who had had cancer, and so my biological age was actually older than my chronological age, much to my despair. That was an awful moment. It happened again later when Rick and I were being screened for life insurance. And I uh, answered the questions honestly, told him about the hang gliding experience. He was super preferred, and I was only preferred. So I guess the moral to that is your real age may not be what you want it to be based on the way you choose to live your life. Finally is social age. So your biological age can be affected by your psychological age, but I think social age is probably the most significant one. We are what society tells us we are. Over and over and over again, we get images about how we should act or be at different ages. And the message is so strong that a few years ago, Vogue magazine had their annual age issue. And the cover promised um, photos of, of uh, styles for women ages 20 to 90. So I purchased the magazine, got it home, opened it up, and they had the same 20-year-old model modeling the clothes for the 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, and 90-year-olds. So the message they were sending is, while we, we want you to know that we, we know there are older women out there, we just don't want to have them in our magazine. And so we're seeing those kind of media images all the time that tells us what we should be. So we're socialized to be a certain way at certain ages. And our social culture tells us that older adults should be asexual. And that's the image, the feeling that we get over and over again. And so if you hear it enough, you start to believe it. And older adults tell themselves that they're abnormal if they have sexual feelings. So uh, those are the kind of people that are going to be living into our nursing homes. So nursing homes are actually what we call total institutions. It was a, a phrase that Goffman created to represent prisons and nunneries and boarding schools. These were institutions that choose to make all decisions for people, and now we've created nursing homes that do the same thing. So why did this happen? Well, the history behind nursing homes is really kind of fascinating. 
Years and years ago in England, there was a system where if you were old and sick, your family took care of you. Or there were a few hospitals that were run by nuns, and you could go and spend the last of your days in a hospital. But if you were healthy and older and had no family to live with, you lived with an almsman. The almsman put you to work, usually on a farm. This system came to the United States. Um, there was somebody in a county government that said, hey, I want some of that action. So they created the county poor farm. How many in this room have heard of the county poor farm? Okay. The county poor farm was run by the county government, and it's where you went if you were poor and you didn't have any place else to go. And they usually put you to work. Conditions were bad. In fact, many times children were threatened by their parents. You're going to put me in the poor farm because they were doing something that cost too much money. Uh, poor farms were generally seen as a fate worse than debt. Death, And the reason for that was in the 1850s, there was a, a social belief that if you were old and indigent, meaning you didn't have any resources, it was probably because when you were young, you were a rotten kid. So they used the poor farm as a threat to get you to behave when you were younger. This system continued for a long time. And in the 30s, it was so bad that state legislators, when they decided to fund a pension program for older adults called Social Security, they said, you can't use your pension, your Social Security, for government housing. You use it for something else. So a lot of people moved out of the poor farms and moved into board and care homes with the money that they could pay from their Social Security. And so you would have thought that that would be the end of... Um, the poor farm, the end of a bad image, but it didn't. It continued until the 60s, when in the 60s um, there was Medicare and Medicaid. And Medicare said, you can't stay in a hospital until you die anymore. You're going to have to go find someplace else to live, and they didn't have any place that had the skilled care that these people needed. So just like that, they created nursing homes. Nobody put any thought into it. They didn't think about the social, it as a social program. They said, well, we move people out of hospitals. We better make more hospitals to put them into. So they designed a hospital model that was meant to be efficient, that was meant to deliver what was needed for these people's care, but really didn't think about it as a social model and what people needed. So unfortunately, nobody ever really gave that any much thought until recently. Within the last 20 years, we've had a movement that's called culture change. And culture change is beginning to look at the way people um, are housed, the way people are cared for, and we're using the term person-centered care. So culture change means moving and changing the culture from a medical model in nursing homes to a person-centered model, which addresses everybody's needs and what they need to have a good quality of life. So the next section that I'm going to chunk here is the environmental piece of this. So what happened with nursing homes was nobody knew how to do this, so some architect somewhere designed about three different models. You can get an X model with a, nurse, with a, a nursing station right in the middle. You could get a 
it, any variation of that. So it might be a V, it might be um, different, but always in the middle was the nurse's station because that's where you kept an eye on the inmates. You could look down the halls and see if anybody was trying to escape. So um, you could go into any small town in America and find the nursing home immediately because they all look alike. Um, the government gave out the free plans, and they subsidized loans so that everybody built them exactly alike. Unfortunately, in Kansas today, there are still people applying for and getting grants to build a traditional nursing home. Um, we know that it's not the best way to consider housing for older adults, uh, that there are other ways to plan this, but we're still finding that the efficiency model runs supreme. So this is an example. On the left, you see a big nurse's station. On the right, you see something that looks more like a home-like model. Uh, the more advanced ones are called households now, where you have a household. Of, and this, again, I'm talking about skilled care right now. I know that we have great models for assisted living and for independent living. But for skilled care, we're still pretty much seeing pretty limited options for people. Um, one of the interesting things that I'm doing right now is I'm working with a colleague who's an interior designer on asking designers if the clients they work for, these are designers that work in uh, long-term care, if the clients that they work for ever ask for designs that address intimacy for residents. What do you think the response was? No. They said, they were surprised by the question. Are you kidding me? No, we never ever thought about that. Um, so. This is an example of um, an adaptation that a facility made. This is a couple's room, and the wife in this instance sleeps in this bed in the front, and she can't fall asleep without touching her husband. So he sits in this chair and holds her hand until she falls asleep, and then the staff come in and assist him to move to his bed. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to have a double bed? So... Um, take a look at this next picture. This is um, a regulation requires three foot of space around the outside of a bed. So in a room this size, could you get a double bed? Probably not. So we um, are still designing rooms. You see the, the drawing on the right-hand side of your screen. That squiggly line in the middle, what is that? That's the privacy screen. Isn't that a great word? That's a privacy screen. Semi-private rooms were designed to shortchange one person or the other in one way or the other. So you either got to have the bathroom or you got to have the window. And if you had the window, you had to walk through the other person's space to get to the bathroom. Um, there is nothing, I contend, nothing private about a semi-private room. Can you imagine anyone having an intimate relationship in a room like this? But we're still seeing rooms being designed like this because we don't get enough reimbursement to um, allow for larger spaces or better designs. This is a better design. This is a semi-private room because they share the bathroom. But that's a wall down the middle. Those are curtains with the squiggly lines between the rooms. But you can see both have access to the bathroom. Both have a window. And uh, I've been in one of these rooms. They're really quite private. Um, not as much as you want with being able to close a door, but certainly it's an improvement. Um, you can see this requires more square footage space. And so it's still not the prevalent model. 
Um, we have uh, Metal Arc Hills in Manhattan was one of the forerunners in culture change. And they still have a couple of old wings. And they wanted to turn them into private rooms. And they can't make it work financially. So they have to stick with the old semi-private room division. So I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about uh, some of the environmental changes you think could be made to make nursing homes and really the full range of um, housing for elders more private and more open to intimacy. What are some of the things that you've seen done? And they can be structural, or they can be things like um, just creating do not disturb signs. Any ideas? Oh, this tells me that you're not very in tune to intimacy. Well, I don't know why you couldn't require that. Um, but most nursing homes that I know of in Kansas do require people to knock on doors, but they don't wait to have a, a response. So that's almost as bad. Okay, here's another thing I want you to consider. The idea between private and semi-private and public spaces. So think about your own home. If you're um, on your front porch, your front porch and your neighbors walk by, you might invite them up onto your front porch. We'd call that a semi-public space because it's open to just about anybody. And then you might say, well, come on into the house. I want to give you a cup of tea or something like that. And your semi-private space would be your living room and your kitchen. So you don't invite just everybody, but you feel pretty comfortable with that. How frequently would you invite your neighbor to come into your bedroom? Unless you, changed, unless you changed the wallpaper, probably not very likely at all. And yet we design nursing homes where you walk by people's bedrooms. And I don't care how sensitive you are. Your eyes are drawn to those rooms. And you look into a room and observe somebody in their bed. So one of the simple things you could do is try to figure out a way so that the beds are not in the line of sight when you walk by the rooms. So that is one adaptation that you might look for. Another is keeping the doors closed as much as you possibly can. Um, some residents will want them to be left open, and that is their right. Um, another thing that I wanted to make sure that you knew is just because we're talking about sexuality doesn't mean you need to push it on people. There are some people that will want to be sexual, won't want to have intimate relationships, and that's their right too. Bill. I don't know where exactly where to start with that, but Bill's question was about staff empowerment, is that staff tend to want to be in control, so they want the doors to be left open, and that residents have little or no control over that. 
That is truly opposed to person-centered care language. So in person-centered care language, when you empower the staff, it means that they're quick to answer and address resident needs and concerns. So um, in staff empowerment, what is meant to mean in the culture change literature means that instead of having to go ask the nurse or the administrator if they can put up a do not disturb sign or push the beds together, they know that they can address resident needs. Now, what needs to happen, Bill, and we'll get to this late, sooner or later, is that the resident and staff relationships need to improve. So if you're seeing homes where people are just addressing things from an efficiency model and not from a relationship model, you will see what you're seeing, that they will control it in any way that they can. But when you develop relationships with, between residents and staff, between residents and residents, residents and family, staff and family, then you start to see that it's easier for staff to say, I know it would be nicer to, for me if I kept this door closed for this resident. I, I know it would be better if I waited before I entered the room. Um, and that's part of the training that we've been very, very successful with. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. What would be nice, too, in, in uh, working in a nursing home, I, I've seen where every square inch is possible income. So they don't, they're not usually real flexible with this. But it would be nice to have an area that would just be a small den folks if they want to just be alone together to just go into that den and hang out together but unfortunately as i said the management needs to look at that as square inches right right um, that's very good. Okay, back to our semi-private private and public spaces. Within the home, there should be some semi-private areas where people can go to get away from the group. Um, we had a person that worked in our office, and she did a really cool research project one time. She gave cameras to all the residents and cameras to the staff, and she asked people to take pictures of the place that they thought were the most like home for them. And so the staff all took pictures of the really nice living room, the entrance, Tree where there's a sofa for people to sit. And the residents all took pictures of their little tiny space with their bed and the pictures of their husband and their wife. And for us, what that revealed was that more money needs to go into the staff, into the resident rooms, because they see that as their home and less expense put into those grandiose areas that the public sees the most. So while I agree with you that there needs to be more private spaces within that, I think more attention needs to be paid to the place that residents now view as their home, which is their room. Yes, sir.
Right. You know, with dementia, sometimes the rules have to be thrown out the window, but you also characterized what a, a point that I want to make over and over again today, and that's it all has to be so individualized. We'll talk about policy later, but your policy has to be broad enough that you can look at individual cases one by one. So when you have a couple and you know that you want to give them extra opportunities for intimacy, then you adapt to that. And I think that's the whole idea behind how you serve elders is adaptation. Okay, some good thoughts there. Um, another couple things that I wanted to mention is um, conjugal visit rooms. So there are a few places, and just the word conjugal visit, doesn't it sound like a prison? So there are a few places that have conjugal visit room policies. So you can order the room, you know, not when you're feeling in the mood, but you have to order it a week in advance or whatever. And you have to fill out paperwork. And, yeah, it sounds terrible. And the worst part of it is there's sort of a junior high environment sometimes in a nursing home. And if somebody were to use that room, they could expect the rest of the residents to go, oh, yeah, you're going to use the conjugal visit room. I wonder what that's all about. And so people avoid relationships in nursing homes because they don't want to be berated by people who might be jealous of the fact that they have a relationship and they don't. So conjugal visit rooms I don't think are very effective. Um, it's a nice thing to be able to offer it. Um, you might instead use it as a guest room for families to use as a guest room and allow residents to use it when they want to. And it has a multifunction capacity then and it doesn't have the, uh, the uh, stigma attached to it, I guess, that sometimes a conjugal visit room would. Um, another thing that we've seen is that on occasion, uh, we've seen staff members that will get a hotel room for a couple that want to have an intimate time together and make all of the arrangements have the call button there if there should be a problem. So um, that has been... It's actually really exciting for staff members that can create something special for residents that want them. And we see a lot of creativity around that, so that's been kind of cool to see. So that's my kind of environmental piece, except we've got to add the regulations to that. Um, Karen Shoneman worked for CMS for a long, long time, and when we started working with sexuality and aging, we realized that there really isn't much in the federal regs that regard it. So these are the only ones that even relate to it at all. There's one that says that uh, family members can live together. I have some feelings about that, so um, I'm going to tell you about it later. But other regs are usually related to privacy. Uh, the resident right for privacy is when you ask staff members if they have a policy regarding sexuality in their home, this is the one they quote. They think it means sexual, the right for sexuality and sexual expression, but it doesn't. It's not specific enough. If you're using some interpretive guidelines, it might get you there. Highest practical level of function is something that is used frequently by people who want to show to the surveyors that um, there is a reason for the care plan that includes a sexual expression. And the comprehensive care plan, I guess, is also what you can use to show that a sexuality can be honored within a, a resident population. So um, 
We've got really creative people in Kansas that use those interpretive guidelines to help them to create their policies, which we're going to be talking about later this morning. And um, we haven't really seen any problems, any major problems related to um, the surveyors and sexual practices within homes. So uh, I wanted to share with you a little bit about how I got involved in sexuality and what's happening in Kansas, because we have... Um, sort of a reputation as being the most person-centered care state um, because of some of those things that are happening. We have a program called PEAK. PEAK means promoting excellent um, alternatives for Kansas nursing homes. And it's been around since 2003 when it was a recognition and an education program. And the recognition part of this was um, to uh, find the homes that were doing person-centered care that had changed the most away from the medical model and to recognize them within the state as a peak home. And um, they, this started in 2003 and went on for the longest time until about two years ago when we got a new Secretary of State who said that recognition program isn't working. We have 350 nursing homes in Kansas and only 45 of them had self-nominated themselves for this award. And some of them were failing miserably. Some of them who had once been a peak winner had gotten a new administrator and was no longer person-centered. And so the program wasn't working. He said, how, how about taking an intrinsically motivated program to an extrinsically motivated program? What happens with culture change is that an administrator gets this awakening that says, oh, this isn't the way it should be done. It should be better than this. And they have this life-changing event, and they go back and they change their facility so that they're more resident-directed. It's always been like that. It's traveled around the world like that. And it always depends on that one person that beats the bushes and makes it happen. But more recently, our Secretary of Aging says, what if we gave people money to be more person-centered? So it's a pay-for-performance uh, program uh, based on Medicaid reimbursement for the homes. Those homes that at least apply get a 50 cents per diem per re Medicaid resident um, per diem, so that's every day. Um, the ones that get the most advanced in this go to a level five where they're making $4 per day per Medicaid re resident. For some of our homes, it'll mean uh, forty to $50,000 um, over the year. So that's major when Medicaid reimbursement is low and not going very high in the state. So over the last couple of years, we now have 240 out of our 340 homes that have applied to this program, and they have to go through a very rigorous assessment to move up on these levels. Um, as we were doing this, we um, here's a little bit about our demographics, the 325, 330 homes. Um, about two-thirds of these are for-profits here in Kansas, and the average resident, like everywhere else, is over 85 usually female. Um, so culture change is the word we use to change from one culture to another. And so our role in this has always been the education part of it. So we wrote lots and lots of modules about how to do it. And they're all available on the state of Kansas website. Um, and they're called culture change modules. Um, if you want to know more about that, I can give you my card and we can, we can converse about that. 
But we did probably 14 different modules. And finally, one day, somebody said, I want to do one on diversity. And she did. She wrote it on diversity. And the last chapter of it was LGBTs. And I read the thing. And I go, holy moly, we're putting the cart before the horse. We haven't even talked about sexuality. And we've already jumped to LGBTs. And so we wrote a, a chapter on sexuality. And we went out and we did trainings in several nursing homes. And the trainings only lasted 50 minutes, a little bit longer, a little bit less time than what I've been talking to you. All it is is about awareness. You show that bingo thing, and then you talk a little bit about the rights of residents, and staff get it. All of a sudden, they're gun-ho for the staff for making some of those things happen. We went back nine months later. They were hanging do not disturb signs. They changed their policies about knocking on doors. They'd move beds together. And there was one of these was a Mennonite community with the workers wore the little prayer caps. So it was a pretty, what we would think of as a pretty conservative place. And one of the staff members said, this changed my life. And I, now I want you to come back and talk to us about LGBTs because I feel really uncomfortable with that population and I need some more awareness. It's amazing what staff training can do. It's, it's the most person-centered care thing that you can possibly train people on because if they can get that sexuality is a part of what everybody should have more of, they can get that dining practices can improve. They can get that maybe you should be given baths in a different manner. So all of those things come along with if you extend people's outlook to the farthest reaches that you can possibly think of. So now our role has been to provide the education and do the assessments of all of the nursing homes. So we have our foot in the door of almost every nursing home in Kansas. It's given us a wealth of data, and we've been able to explore what's happening, what's not happening, and it also helps us to see a little bit more about what's going on with the sexuality practices. So I really feel like maybe we're the place that knows the most. So when we started doing all this work and we uh, thought we should do more research on sexuality, we sent out a survey to all the homes. We got 85 responses back. And one of the first questions we asked is, are, is there anything happening in nursing homes? Maybe we shouldn't even explore this any further if nothing is going on. So this is what we got back. People could answer more than one of these. So 85 or a little over 80, 82%, I believe it was, said, yes, there is sexual talk. And sexual talk is defined as flirting, um, talking about sexual needs, just saying things related to sex, telling dirty jokes. Um, and so I'm a little surprised by 82%. You know, somebody's got their eyes closed because I bet, bet there's 100% going on in nursing homes related to sexual talk. Um, the sexual act, which can include, include masturbation as well as oral sex, um, sexual intercourse, they're saying 82% again. And then uh, implied sexual act is refers to when a, when a resident asks for more genital care than they actually need. So there's ways of getting their satisfaction. Kind of roundabout. Uh, false allegations, and we're glad that this is so low, is when a resident accuses another resident or a staff member of rape or inappropriate behavior. And finally, we've asked about romance. Are romances happening? So you can see from this chart that, you know, across the board, a lot of these things are happening. Unfortunately, many of these things are viewed as inappropriate behaviors. Um, I really 
object to the word inappropriate. I've always said that most things are appropriate. They just have inappropriate places to do them. And in nursing homes, you really don't have appropriate places to do them, so they get labeled. So we also asked about staff reactions. When staff were viewing um, some of these things that they had seen, how did they react? Um, they ask a supervisor about 70% of the time. So uh, commonly what we think of is they walk into a room and they view somebody masturbating or having sex. And so rather than try to accommodate them or walk quietly out of the room, they dash off and ask their supervisor. 32% um, so were disgusted. 41% uh, fo said follow the facility policy. Um, then when we asked them about policy, it was obvious they didn't really have one, so I don't know how exactly how they were following it. Ignore the issue uh, was about 30%. Panic, 20%. <laughs> Help and or respect the resident was 50%, and other was 18.9%. So obviously some other people had some other ideas about this as well. Um, we really feel like a lot of this was a lack of that empowerment that I was talking to you about, Bill, is that if residents know enough, have been educated enough about uh, resident sexuality, then they will be empowered to do the right thing. Instead of dashing down the hall and finding somebody else to do it for them, they will graciously and respectfully um, handle the situation. We're going to do some case studies in a little while that will help you to understand that better. So finally... Um, we asked a question about GLBTs, um, and this was a little bit disturbing to me because uh, we had about, um, I think, if I remember correctly, about 60% of the nursing homes that we surveyed said that they were aware that they had had a resident or a staff member that was a GLBT. And um, we also asked, well, did you ask about sexual orientation on entry to the nursing home? So I wanted to know how you feel about that, because most people would say, oh, we couldn't ask that. How do you feel about that as being something, it could be optional even. Other. It could go under other, and you could volunteer that information. Okay. Did you all hear that? Um, ombudsman has been working with them about changing the way they phrase some of the questions on admittance, and uh, it, that's an excellent suggestion. Using the word partner, or is there somebody special in your life that we should be notifying about your care? Um, a lot of times uh, we're finding that gays and lesbians, bisexuals and transsexuals, go back into the closet when they go into long-term care because they're afraid of the type of care that they're going to be receiving. So we wondered whether you know, it would be something that nursing homes should be a little bit more open about asking because it might reveal that they're going to be respectful about that. Um, one of the things that we were so disturbed by was that a couple of people responded, no, this is Kansas. Those kind of people only live on the east and west coast. Yeah. You get that in Vermont, too? No. No, no, no. Just the opposite. Yeah. 
Okay, so so we obviously have a lot of educating to do in Kansas, but uh, I found that really disturbing. Yes. If, you know, I, I don't think that it should be a requirement that people have to list their sexual orientation, but making it an option allows people the feeling that, you know, this is going to be something honored here, and that should probably go into policy as well. Um, but I, I think that if you're not open about it, that they're not going to be open about it either, and they will feel like they have to go into the closet and pretend. And that's one of the worst things. Military, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's that's been the, the the language that they used on the survey, just like the military. I think I agree with you, but I, I still think you have to respect the residents' rights to make that determination themselves. Just being open into opening that door, and again, that's where I think policy and language are really, really important. Hope we can get back to that again later. Um, I hope you all heard that. I think that's an excellent suggestion, is to um, allow the education to be not just for staff but for uh, residents, but I would suggest also family, because you're going to find that the families are going to be the ones that object the most, uh, to have mom rooming with a lesbian. <laughs> Yep. And what your yep. So, I think anybody that starts an education series like that uh, does benefits to themselves and the community. Yes. Yeah. And interested and thoughtful and um, wanting to learn, yeah. wanting to go on 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, I, I, it's easy for me to go off on a tangent. I'm sure you're starting to realize that. But, um, but uh, I, I think that's what you're describing is geriotranscendence, where older adults at some point in their life go beyond themselves and start to think about the greater good. And I've seen that happen time and time again. I'm around so many older people that mentor my students. And uh, they start out with issues that are pretty self-productive. Self and then, then I would have somebody come in and say, I can't stand those offshore people and what they're doing for our economy and our environment and and then he'd start saying and what about Walmart in China and what they're doing to the people there and I realized that you know they they really can many older adults become more retrospective about what's happening in the world and be more open to change and uh, uh, liberal more liberal uh, liber you know you can be conservative in your liberalism never wanting to look at the conservative side um, and people who are truly liberal can look at both sides of the issue, and I find that happens many times with older adults. So I love what you're suggesting here is that we have more education related to this, and obviously we're going to come back to policy in the second session, and we'll talk about how you could incorporate that into your policy. So um, the next thing I wanted to mention is a really terrible thing that happens in long-term care, and that's a gender diversity. So. Obviously, we have five women to every one man in long-term care facilities, uh, assisted living as well as a skilled care. And so that creates some sort of competition among the women. But if, if the men in the room should think that that's necessarily a good thing, there's also some bad things related to sexuality. If there is a romance or some sort of sexual liaison that transpires, the man is always viewed as the dirty old man. The medical director is notified, and sometimes the staff wants there to be some sort of medication to take care of this issue. The woman, while she may be the aggressor, is usually seen as the one that's being taken advantage of. So in the case study that we're going to cover later on, um, this particular event happened in his room because she pursued him, and yet he was the one that was found as the guilty party. So, so we have staff members that have this enculturated belief that the sex thing is always initiated by the guy, and so in a nursing home, there's a lot of inappropriate, in my terms, uh, treatment of men when it regards the sexual pleasure Act And so a lot of times we'll see the man is removed from the building because of these issues, but it's seldom the woman that is seen as the aggressor. So I just think that's kind of an interesting phenomena. So you guys look out. Uh, oh, I, I did have a story regarding that. Um, there was a, a daughter that was visiting her father at bedtime in the nursing home, and the nurse gave her dad Viagra. And... And the daughter says, what is that for? And the nurse said, it keeps him from falling out of bed at night. <laughs> That's not true either. <laughs> OK, um, this is what I was really going to talk about today. It looks to me like we're due for a break in about 10 minutes. So I might not get it all covered, but we'll move it to the next session. Um, this is near and dear to my heart because my father is in the early stages of dementia. My parents have always had a very active sex life. 
that um, I was quite aware of. My mom and I were sort of best friends at one time where she was telling me all of the issues related to sexuality, and that wasn't always appropriate. But um, we kind of cooled the, our jets for a while until I wrote a book, and now they ask me questions all the time again. <laughs> and my mom usually does it pretty discreetly. We'll be out driving in the car, and she'll ask me a question. My dad is more creative. They have a pond. He puts me on the paddle boat, paddles out to the middle of the pond, and says, our sex life isn't what it used to be. And that is a little bit rougher for me, is to try to address his issues. So um, dementia affects a couple's relationship in so, so many ways. And if any of you are living that in this room, I can sympathize and empathize with you. Um, and so we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Um, Uh, I think this is when I was going to tell you about this case study. And some of you may have heard about it. Uh, Brian Gurley wrote an article for Bloomberg Reports about a Coralville, Iowa nursing home where um, two older people were caught in the sexual act. And a couple of years later, actually, her family sued the nursing home. I was asked to be an expert witness for this. It didn't go to trial, so I didn't get to see hear both sides of it. I heard the nursing home side, and this is what I heard. I thought that the um, uh, the uh, attorney that called me really relished telling all of the details of this. And I was really surprised by that. But um, <laughs> what happened was was at Thanksgiving time, this, there was this couple that had a, developed an attraction for each other. And I believe she would, still had a living spouse. He did not. They both had dementia. She was more advanced in her dementia than he was. Um, and at Thanksgiving, the staff caught them in bed together. They were fully clothed, but they were just talking. And so um, the woman was examined afterwards, found that there had been nothing that was approaching abuse or anything. And so the director of nursing made the decision not to notify the state, but she did call the families and announce that there had been uh, uh, an incident. And the family requested that the they couple be separated and not allowed to spend time together. And so and a staff member was assigned to watch the man to make sure that they didn't they didn't meet. Apparently at Christmas, uh, the staffing was down for the holiday, and they were found in his room, and she was on all fours on the bed, and he was behind her going to town. And a staff member walked in, as you can imagine, screeched, yelled, ran down the hall, got all kinds of people to come into the room with her. They separated the couple. He was made to stand in the hallway like a errant bad boy, and uh, the woman was examined. Now, the woman didn't speak much, but all of the staff were well aware of what she liked or didn't like because of the way she behaved. And so in this incident, she was kicking and screaming and biting because they had been separated. And in everybody's mind, this was consensual sex. Is it possible to have consensual sex if one or both of the persons has dementia? That's going to be your big question for today. I want you to think about that through break, and we're going to come back and address it later. But what happened was they were separated again. I believe the man was um, forced to leave the, uh, the facility and move somewhere else. Um, uh, sometime later, the woman died. She didn't die because she had sex. She may have died because she wasn't allowed to have sex. Uh, who knows? 
But the family decided at that time that they were going to sue the facility for not protecting their mother. Um, it turned into a battle of personalities. Apparently, the director of nursing had for well, she had not told the state after the sexual intercourse because she had decided that it was consensual. That was maybe her mistake. It was kept quiet for a while, and then it came out later that the director of nursing had threatened some of the staff that they would be fired if they ever told. And so that's why the lawsuit occurred. Uh, the nursing home settled. The director of nursing and the administrator lost their jobs and have not gone back to long-term care. So it was really a sad thing that probably could have been rectified had there been a policy in the building, had staff been trained about how to appropriately respond to an incident like this, and, and had family members perhaps been more well-informed about what could happen or what consensual sex was with a mother who wasn't speaking to them. So um, what do you think is the best example or the best definition of consent? Good. I'm glad you're going to be addressing that because that's really important. Yeah, back here. Okay, uh, I think you had one more comment over here. You know, the, the interesting thing is, um, this is an anecdotal evidence, but I think more wives have been uh, supportive than have sub, uh, have children. Yeah, yeah. Blonde. Okay, so there. You, what you're saying is, you there are definitely ways that people can communicate these things. Yes. Uh, right behind you, Anita. Yeah. Um, I think that 
Right. All decisions are made for the children. They pay the bills. Anita. We talked about that this last night. Um, the possibility of STDs is something that needs to be addressed, is that I think most of us are conditioned not to think about that the first when we think about older adult sexuality. And so most of us hadn't probably considered that with this scenario, but you're absolutely right. Uh, pr protection. Yeah. Sure. Oh, did you hear that? Is STD testing part of the intake procedures in nursing homes? Yeah. I don't see any heads nodding, so I have not heard of that. Yeah, that would, that's an interesting concept. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, let me let me sound off on the consent issue. I think we've got just a couple more slides that I want to finish up before I let you have a break. Um, um, I believe in something called functional uh, consent. So. Most of the consent policies that you're going to look at are going to say something related to um, the part about aware of the consequences. So a consequence of having a sexual partner in a nursing home is that that person might die or leave them or what would they, how would they feel if this relationship ended. So that's a part of the consent issue that is a little bit stickier for me to handle is while I believe people can express their functional consent, that means you can't use Lichtenberg's scale, which I will show you later, to to assess with a mini mental status assessment whether a person can have sex or not. I don't believe in that because you might not be able to handle your checkbook because you can't count backwards from 100 by 7. But you should obviously be able to demonstrate whether you want to be with somebody or not. So these are a little bit about uh, state laws related to consent policies. So they vary on one end of the extreme. It's mentally capable of understanding the social mores of sexual behavior. On the other, understand the sexual nature of an act and the decision to engage in the sexual behavior is voluntary. 
And finally, in Kansas, there has to be this understanding of the sexual conduct and the, the potential consequences of it. So we asked a lot of questions on our survey with the nursing homes, and many of them had rather liberal consent beliefs, but most of them said that they, the, the, they didn't have much of a knowledge of what consent was in their own facility. So they didn't know what the policy was related to that. So here's one that I think has some good merit. Um, uh, these criteria obviously seem to work well and may be something that this is one of the reasons why I put it on a slide so you would have it maybe when you're developing your own policies. Uh, voluntariness, safety, no exploitation, no abuse, ability to say no, and socially appropriate time and place. Those might be part of your consent. And this is Lichtenberg's scale. Um, Peter Lichtenberg developed this for consent for sexuality in the late 90s, I believe. And he included the mini mental status. And I think if you were to ha have a conversation with Peter today, he might retract this and say, I'm not sure I believe that anymore. Um, certainly, it limits the number of people who can have a sexual relationship. And two, end up this morning, um, I had some questions that are frequently asked that I was going to respond to. If you want me to respond to those, we'll do it after the break, but I could leave you with one more story. Um, how much is a staff member expected to do? And um, so if you want to do pornography, so for instance, one of my staff members had worked for a dementia care unit. And they did this simple pleasures things, which when on admission, they would ask people what they wanted. And one of the persons said he wanted a, a hooker to come in. And in Kansas, that's not legal. So they couldn't do that. And so they said, well, what's your next best option? And he said, well, I want some pornography. And they said, well, that is legal. And then they had to decide which staff member was going to go get it. So, so that's, you know, how much do staff members have to do? Well, they did agree upon somebody who would go get the pornography, but they also agreed upon a plan to give this guy more attention. And they gave him more attention, and he didn't even need the pornography. So that's another thing that I want to leave you with before we go to break, is that sometimes the need for sexual expression is merely a need for intimacy that can be addressed by any staff member just simply by holding their hands or touching them. Okay, let's take a little break. I'm ready. Well, what, welcome back. I trust that you found sustenance to get you through the next hour. Um, this section, we're switching over to talk a little bit about how to communicate with family members. We've talked a lot about that uh, on the outskirts of it um, for the first hour and a half, uh, and we're going to return to that and uh, maybe develop some policy ideas toward the end. So this has been an area, the area of working with families has been under-researched. Um, we have very little information about how family members influence older adult sexuality. You notice I'm unfettered now, so I may, I may wander over and just ask you a question. Okay, so, so now we have the, uh, the, the influence of, of children on what happens with their parents. And um, 
one of the times when I saw this most critically was I was just talking to uh, family members about culture change practices and that we were trying to find ways for older adults to be able to get their needs, needs met. And um, one of the family members, she was actually a spouse, said to me, uh, we were talking about bathing. Um, have any of you seen Bathing Without a Battle by uh, Joanne Rader? Okay, that for me it epitomizes culture change. Because in the film, they show an older woman who is being showered by two staff members. And she is biting and kicking and screaming. I think I shared last night, I don't think it's in the slides today, that many, many older people were abused sexually when they were younger, and they never had counseling for it and never admitted, admitted to it. And then we go to a nursing home, and we put them in these archaic bathrooms, and we strip them naked by a, a person they don't know, and we expect them to not behave, not make have a, a, a mess out of their behavior. And I think that's something that really is under-researched, under-studied, and certainly not taken care of properly. So um, anyway, this woman was doing all that. She had all of the behavior problems. She was cussing and screaming and saying horrible things to these two aides. Joanne Rader has researched what's called a towel bath. And it's sort of like getting a massage, where you're covered with towels in your bed, and you reveal an area, and you clean it, and then you cover it up again. She has done years and years of research to show that hygienically this is better for a person's body. And they demonstrate with the same woman a towel bath. She's laying in bed, this time with only one aid, not two aids. And she has been heard to say, oh, honey, that feels so good. And that one scene for me right there epitomizes what culture change is. It's taking us from no-brainer, mindlessness, which is we've always done it this way, to there's got to be a better way. And sexuality fits within that. But family members haven't always gotten it. So I was explaining that to this family. And Judy says to me, well, the next time I come, you'll just have him playing in the street because she didn't believe he was capable of making any decisions on his own. So that's the problem we went into with families, is families that have been taking care of their family members for a long time and making all of their decisions for them. And then when they go to the nursing home and all of a sudden the nursing home says, you were wrong, they can make some of their own decisions. It makes you look bad. So that's what we run into with family members a lot. Oops, I lost my clicker. So these are the things we're going to cover. We're going to talk about how to support the non-institutionalized uh, spouse or partner. We're going to talk about adult children reactions to parental behaviors and how to advocate for the resident in the face of family resistance. So this is one of the things that um, ombudsmans do, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So how do we support a person when one of the spouses or partners lives in long-term care and the other one doesn't? Well, it's important to talk about all of the changes that dementia can create. There's changes in hygiene, really, really significant when you're talking about sexuality. 
caregiving spouse may no longer be in, uh, attracted to this person. There might be an incontinence issue. There could be communication problems and then, of course, inappropriate behaviors. We don't frequently see um, hypersexuality with dementia. In fact, usually people have a reduced rate of sexuality. They don't seem to desire it as much. But sometimes we do see hypersexuality. Sometimes in some cases when a person can't remember that they've just had sex. So that can be an issue. There, there are also some medications and some types of dementia that are more likely to be prone to hypersexuality and the need for more sex. So there, there, there are issues related to how does a spouse feel to that. Um, there can be an increase, interestingly enough, there's been shown to be in, an increase in affection when the spouse that is affected with dementia moves into a nursing home. So it could be that the non-affected spouse or partner feels um, l more energy, has more uh, compassion, um, less stress. So those are factors, but it also could be guilt. So that now this person is living in the nursing home, I'm going to shower affection on them because it, it helps to alleviate some of the guilt I'm feeling. You may have seen all of these things. Um, but then, of course, there's problems with privacy um, and how do we manage that. Uh, Carol Marshall is a good friend of mine. I'm on the board of directors for a uh, sort of a medium-sized uh, for-profit chain of nursing homes called Medical Lodges. And Carol Marshall is one of my uh, partners in crime on that. She's written a book called um, uh, Customer Service. I, I can't remember the title of it. But basically, it's about customer service. And her idea about customer service is creating relationships with families. And I think she says families who have a relationship with you won't sue you. And she's absolutely right about that. You just have to consider the needs of the family members as well as the resident that you're serving. It's, it's just your primary goal. And there's nothing that can be said about that. And there's only benefits, not detractions from the work that you do. So, Here's some of the spousal concerns when, um, oh, here, I, I added this, sign, this uh, slide and I forgot about it. So if you have a, a resident in the home and the spouse lives at home, so how do you find private time for them? Well, some, some organizations work at trying to schedule the roommate. So he's off doing some activity when the partners want to share some time together. Um, that can be problematic in that maybe that's hard to get the roommate to move out at the time that you want to have a relationship in the room. So that's a difficult one to handle. Um, staff awareness and respect are, of course, important. The locked doors and the conjugal visit rooms, which we've already covered. Family care is something that's new. And it happened out of a problem related to too many assisted living rooms. So in McPherson, Kansas, there was a uh, continuing care retirement community that built too many assisted living rooms, and they couldn't fill them. And so they recognized that some of the people with dementia really didn't need skilled care. I think you probably see that a lot. With people with dementia, sometimes it's a cognitive loss, but they really don't have any medical issues. So they decided to turn one of those assisted living rooms into what they call family care. And in family care, the wife or the partner can share the room with the affected spouse for $500 extra dollars a month. 
So she doesn't have to be there all the time. She has the facility to rely upon. She can uh, put her spouse into activities during the day and go off and do her shopping. Um, so she has the option of being there with him at night if she wants to, and it's working well. Um, there doesn't seem to be any issues with regulation, and they've made it work in terms of financially. So um, the spouses and the partners tend to not be there as much as they perhaps thought they would initially. Uh, but it has been a good way to make a transition. Yes, ma'am? Is that private pay? Uh, I, yeah, I'm assuming that it's probably all private pay. I'm not sure how you could do $500 a month on Medicaid. No. And that person is not considered a resident of the assisted living? No. Nope. A guest? Yep. Well, I, I think what you're going to see more of, if we're going to build assisted living, it's going to be more for uh, memory supports. Um, and I think there will always be a great need for that. So, uh, and if, if there's going to be a new design created, I hope somebody puts effort into the programmatic designs related to sexuality and meaningful life. So we'll see how, what happens with that. So these are some of the things that a spouse might think about when they have, uh, or a partner might think about when they have their affected member. So how am I obligated as a spouse to, or wife, or husband or wife, who no longer recognizes me? We had a lengthy conversation about this last night. Do you have an obligation? I believe it was one of the evangelists who said, if you have a spouse or partner that has dementia, it's like a death and you're not committed to that relationship, you should feel free to have another one. That was shocking to me that that came out. Um, but that is certainly a personal bias and certainly something that at some point your social service person might need to visit with a partner about. If uh, We've already talked about the idea that there might be some resident in your home that's married to somebody at home and they fall in love with at the home. It could happen that way, but it could happen in the reverse. Um, a few years ago, there was a CBS news correspondent that told the story about his wife, who was also a news correspondent, and had early onset Alzheimer's when she was still in her 40s or 50s. And he tried to take care of her as long as he possibly could, and then put her in a facility, where he goes to visit her daily, now with his new partner. And he told that story um, publicly, and uh, part of the story is that his wife now has two people who love her and go to see her frequently. But it is a story that they knew that some of the public would not appreciate and would not accept because he, as a married partner, was meant to be committed to her. These are things that can occur in any facility and push staff to Think about their morals and values. Yes, ma'am. So you've this is an example that you're aware of. Well, several. Yeah.
Right. Um, I, I think that this example in particular makes us aware how sensitive we have to be to the family needs, is that you're not just administering to the person that lives with you, but the needs of the people that are trying to survive without that person. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, later on we're going to have a, a discussion about substituted judgment versus best interests and what you're describing is substituted judgment. If you leave enough instructions about what you would want later on, then it's much easier for caregivers to know how to provide that care. But there are problems with that as well and, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Thank you for bringing it up. Okay, so so. That's the first question. How do I manage a sexual relationship when my feelings toward my spouse have changed? And sometimes you're treating this spouse as if they were your child now. And how do you feel about having, you know, that's incestuous, you know, that's just, it, it's, it's not romantic to have to take care of a person, change their underwear, do everything for them, and still try to feel romantic toward them. In the case of my parents, um, they're certainly not having sex every day like they used to, and it's been pretty problematic. But for my dad, as he loses the capacity to do everything else, he wants to be able to have mastery in one thing. And for him, that's to be a man. And that's been a huge struggle for him to say, you know, it's not going to happen every morning any, anymore. So. Um, so that's one thing that a spouse or a partner has to, has to go through. I no longer feel the same about this person. Should I be doing this? And there are different ways to commit to that. How do I handle my feelings of angry, anger, frustration, and entrapment? How do I cope with my spouse's changes in sexuality? And how do I meet my spouse's needs? I love my spouse, but I cannot bring myself to be intimate with him or her. Um, all of these things are very, very difficult to handle, and I certainly don't think that you as professionals will ever have to face this, but knowing about this underlying quality helps you to better understand the relationships that you then make with partners as they bring their relatives to you. i got way too many things to hang on to. Okay, so the key to a successful adjustment to the nursing home or to the assisted living facility is to give up old expectations. Um, Dancing with Rose was one of the most influential books in my life, and I was fortunate enough to get to meet and become really good friends with the author, Lauren Kessler. Lauren Kessler wrote Dancing with Rose. It now has a different title, but you can still find it under that name. And she had had a mother who died from Alzheimer's. Lauren felt guilty about that. And so as a journalist, she decided to 
spend some time as a caregiver in a dementia care unit to find out what it was like. And what she found was life-giving to her. She found that when her mom was staying at home, or when a spouse stays at home and family try to take care of them, there's pressure on the person with dementia to be the person they used to be. All, constantly they say, well, do you remember me? I'm Doris. Don't you remember the time we took the trip? Don't you remember I just told you that an hour ago? There's all this tremendous pressure, and, and, and uh, children and spouses really, really want to find those glimpses that say, he's still in there. And, but then, when a person goes to a special care unit, they happen to be around people who are very special, who care about the person that is there now. And that's the emphasis. That person is relieved of the responsibility to be a person they can no longer be. And so, for me, it gave me the permission to say, well, if dad needs to go to a nursing home, it might be the best thing for him. He's going to be the perfect patient. He is lovable, adorable. The staff will love him. He'll have a million stars behind his name. And at some point, he's going to realize that this is, this is better than sliced peaches because that's the kind of person that he is. But it's difficult for us to let go of the person he was. Very, very difficult. And so that can be your job is not only to honor and respect the person that is there, but to respect the people that love that person. Um, one other thing happens. You know what learned helplessness is? That's when you do too much. So uh, staff members can do this, but also family members can do this. So if you decide that a person can't make decisions for himself, but also you know that it's much quicker to put that shirt on if you do it than if you wait for him to do it, then pretty soon that ability to be able to do it goes away. There was one study that a person that moves into a nursing home will give up their mobility within two weeks and not be able to get out of a chair. It's partly because they think they paid for that service. The staff are supposed to do it for them. It's partly because they see that all the people they're surrounded by can't do it, so that must mean I'm here because I can't do it either. That's learned helplessness, and you've got to fight it. Um, uh, I mentioned last night, there's one point in your life when you decide this is the last day I'm sitting on the floor. I'm never going to be able to do it again. Uh, the first time I gave a speech, I can tell you guys this, this is another embarrassing moment that was true. First time I gave a speech, it was to a, a group of nursing home administrators. And I prepared and prepared and prepared. And I knew that you're supposed to catch their attention within the first 30 seconds. And I couldn't tell a joke to save my soul. And um, I just didn't know what to do. So I came out, and I swear to God, I did a cartwheel and dropped into the splits. And I lost all credibility with that crowd. <laughs> And, and they didn't hear my message at all. My message was, you invite me back in 20 years, I'll do the same thing. And, and that is that hang on to the skills that you've got as long as you possibly can, because when you decide that you're too old to do them for some reason or other, it's going to be gone. You can't get it back again. It's all, a lot of it is psychological. Uh, the guy that used to be the Surgeon General, the old guy. Yeah. Uh, C. Everett Coop. When he was in his 80s, he bought a three-story house. Um, we talk about environments. 
environments, you know, you go to places where they put grab bars in and make the halls wider. And I think if you live in a place like that, you're always telling yourself, someday I'm going to lose this ability to be able to do this. And doesn't that psychologically affect you? There are some designers now that are designing houses with movable walls and, and floors that are slanted. So you force your body and your mind to think about aging differently. So all of these things are really important when you think about caregiving. Are we providing enough intellectual stimulation for our residents? Because that's really what fights some of those losses. Okay, so back to caregiving and caregivers. Um, we think that uh, Kubler-Ross's um, stages of grief are important for us to think about when you have family members. This is really where our biggest problems are in dealing with dementia and caregiving is family members that are grieving. And grief demonstrates itself in many ways. Um, they feel like they broke a pledge to their loved one in putting them in the nursing home, so they're going to do the best they can to control the environment and situation. So they start with grief or denial. And in denial, one instance that we saw was a man that refused to go see his wife in the nursing home. And he told somebody that it was because as long as I don't see her there, I can pretend she's someplace else. And then there are people who deal with anger. And that's what we see probably the most of. They get angry at staff for the little things that they do because they're angry at themselves in the situation. And the staff member that can understand that will be the most successful in dealing with that relationship. And then there is bargaining, and the bargainers are the people that bring cookies for the staff, so they'll give special <laughs> honors. <laughs> and then there are um, the people who go through depression, who, who probably have a special situation. If you can be alerted to the one that doesn't seem to, the daughter that doesn't seem to be sleeping, or that seems to be losing weight, um, you might have a social service person speak with that person and seek some medical attention. But we also see. Finally, for many people, acceptance, and, and that's a really great place for people to be in. Um, okay, a moment to talk about shared spousal rooms. We go into nursing homes that always want to point this out. We have the cutest little married couple, and look how we've set up their room. Anybody have any problems with this? All right! <laughs> Give her three stars. That is the response I'm looking for. You go from a house that has four bedrooms, six baths, and go to one tiny little room for the rest of your lives with this person. And, and people think it's wonderful. They've been married for 70 years. They would not want to be separated. That could be true for some couples. I was visiting a nursing home one time, and I was visiting with the husband of one of these couples. And it was very obvious to me that he was doing everything he could to stay out of that room as much as he possibly could. I've also seen a case in Kansas where the family insisted that their mom and dad share a room together, and he was physically, verbally, and sexually abusing her. And the ombudsman forced them to give her a second room, but the family did not like that because they had to pay more for it. So, you find incidences of all kinds of things, but I really encourage you to think about, is it the best thing to have a husband and wife together for eternity? 
Um, so this is the issue. What do families think when we ask about sexual activity or sexual expression in the nursing homes, what were the families thinking? And most of them were supportive of the facility and the types of changes or arrangements they've made, but many of them were a little bit upset. Um, most of them didn't know if there had been any policy or anything related to that. So, so uh, we, we were a little bit surprised. Um, we do know that in some places there's a good experiences with uh, the family members accepting a new romantic relationship, and that's the setup for the next short video that I want to show you. Sorry about that. I thought we were warmed up. Hmm. Kelly, would you want to come up and experiment with this while I keep talking? Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit about the benefits of sexuality. Um, you have a slide in your packet, if you printed them off, about the benefits. Uh, we put together a uh, family guide to sexuality in the nursing home. I'd be happy to send you that file. It's one of those files that you can change and adapt for your own facility. And it's something you can hand out at admission. And one of the things that we start this little thing with is what are the benefits of sexual expression? Um, you might help me with that. What, what's one benefit of sexual expression for older people? Soothing. It's soothing, yes. Calming. Calming. It's relaxing. Relaxing, comforting. Exercise. That's exactly right. Get the heart rate going. So there are physical benefits from it, as well as psychological benefits. I don't know why it's not. I need to eject and start it again. Um, what I'm trying to show you is from the Hebrew home uh, in New York. Uh, Robin Dessel is a uh, social worker there who recognized probably the first place in the States that a sexual policy was important and that sexual expression should be important to all residents. And so she helped the Hebrew home create a sexuality policy and they got money to do staff training and to develop this video. And this vi video actually shows several different scenarios including an older man. You can learn a lot from special. Yes, that's exactly it. Thank you. I think it might be and psychologists, but ultimately some of the most meaningful advice will come from people who've been there and done that. Now let's hear from some people that have actually experienced these situations. George Epstein and Ruth Kushner had lost their spouses. George was cogent, yet he began a relationship with Ruth, who suffered from Alzheimer's. 
George Epstein was rare, a lovely, lovely human being. I thought my mother was enormously lucky to be able to have this. And he was very loving, and he seemed to bring out in her a side that was very loving, that, that perhaps had not been available before she got sick. But it was happening now, miraculously. She was not alone anymore. She wasn't lonely ever. She was being admired. I just thought it was terrific. I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to my mom in her life, and I still feel that way. I saw my father and Ruth hold hands. I saw him put his arms around her. I saw them kiss. I didn't really think much more about their physical relationship, and I don't think I would have if he had been um, outside the home and with a, a woman who, was, who didn't have dementia. Uh, I don't think any of us really like to think of our parents uh, doing those things. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have worried that she didn't know his name, that she couldn't keep appointments, she couldn't remember what she'd ordered for lunch. What really, really mattered was how happy she made him. Golly, I don't know if that relationship was ever consummated. I mean, I don't think it was about that. I don't have discomfort thinking that, that they, in fact, had sexual intercourse. I can't figure out how they could have handled the specifics of it. I think there was a lot of holding and a lot of touching, you know. My father, to put it mildly, was an adult. Uh, I don't know if Ruth was in a position legally to consent, but she certainly was an adult. And I feel that people past a certain age, and I don't know that age, maybe 18 or whatever, have a right to, to choose how they are going to live as long as they're not hurting those around them. It, it's so basic. I mean, you know, they would, they would, they would never stop feeding someone uh, or providing liquids or providing a bed for them to sleep to and sleep in. And and maybe this is as as basic a need. I hope that we all need to be hugged and held and and kissed. There must be a profound loneliness in not being the center of someone else's life. Children are meant to stand on their own, and while they go on loving us, or we go on loving our parents, parents should not be the center of a child's life. And the loneliness that comes with not having that kind of contact must be profound indeed. At my father's funeral, I thanked Ruth, even though she was not there, but I wanted everyone who was there to know that there was a woman who had given my father great joy at a time of great joylessness in his life. And uh, I and the rest of our family were ultimately very grateful to her. The longer we live and the more vigorous we are in old age, thanks to medical advances, the more that our sexuality prospers as well. We live in a society that is increasingly open to a variety scenarios, um, this is the only real one, the rest are all actors, of 
incidences that might happen in the home and how to best address them. So there's a, a scene with a man that's masturbating in the public area and staff redirecting him and, and those kind of things. So um, it's really quite beautifully done, not very long, five, 15 or 16 minutes. So again, very good for staff training um, and mostly just awareness and awakening. I really wanted to illustrate this because it's rare to find family members so accepting. Um, we, like I said earlier, I think spouses can be more accepting than children can. Um, this was, I usually save this point for the final part of my presentation, but bears repeating right now. Um, there was one guy that wrote in his article that you should all have a durable power of attorney for sexual, sexual matters. <laughs> And I sort of do. I've had this conversation with my husband, and I said, if I fall in love with somebody in the nursing home, I don't want you messing with me. <laughs> and, and so he has said, all right, if you fall in love with somebody in the nursing home, I won't stop that relationship, but I won't come visit you either. So, so we're working on that. <laughs> we're working on that, but, but it, it bears to reason that do you want your children making determinations for what happens in your life when you get older? Because I beg to um, differ with anybody who says that your children know you really well. I think we present to our children what we think they want us to be and that they continue to want us to be that person even after we have dementia. So I would just mention to you that you could do what I have my students do all the time. You talk about end-of-life issues. You talk about, about what happens if you have dementia. You talk to them about your concerns about them making decisions for you later on because you're not sure that they understand you all that well. I think it's also important to talk about the fact that perhaps you, when you have dementia, the things change about what you think you want. And that's where I want to talk a little bit about. Um, oh, here's another really interesting thing from our study is we asked, I mentioned this earlier, how many of the homes would tell family members if consenting adults had a romance? And it was 40%. And 40% of those people said, boy, I wish I didn't have to, but I feel like it's in the regulations that you tell them when there's a big change in, in the resident. So this, uh, I'm not going to go through all this. This, I think, is beautifully written. It's from the um, Hebrew home, sexuality as a resident right. And um, I think you can find it in your handout, so you can use it later. I wanted to talk to you about substituted judgment and best interest. These are two last com com comments I'm going to make, and probably the most important ones. Um, I'm working with a woman named Evelyn Tenenbaum, who is a law professor at Albany. And she wrote a couple of articles related to this. And it is about adultery in the nursing home. So if a resident comes to the home and falls in love with somebody else while that has a living partner, what happens? What, if you had to go to a court of law, what would you do? Well, substituted judgment is these things. It's used frequently in end-of-life cases. It's a, there's a history of the behaviors is reviewed. So if you're like um, the lady over here that was talking about having talked to your spouse about 
um, issues that you want when you're later on. So you can do all that. You can tell them what you want. Um, and it's really important to do so because even with uh, living wills, and there's lots of problems with living wills, sometimes they don't get honored, you at least have some directions for people to go to buy. So substituted judgment is taking a picture of the person, their morals, their values, the ways they lived throughout their life, and then helping to make decisions for that person based on that. So that's one way of looking at it. Best interest, however, is when you um, choose to look at that person from an average viewpoint. In this particular situation, what would be best for the average person? And to use a checks and balance to figure it out. Well, as in with Dancing with Rose, when you're trying to use the person that they were in the past, that would be substituted judgment. But is that person the same person that, that they are now? Should you be using all those specifications that you said before when you're no longer that person? There was a case in California where a doctor was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and he told his wife, I want Dr. Kevorkian to kill me when I reach this stage in my d dementia. And loyal wife that she was, she went and got Dr. Kevorkian when the time came. And the son uh, took her to court and sued her, saying that my father wants to live. He is no longer the person that said that and made you make that promise. That's what happens. The rules get changed when you have dementia. So the rules that you make prior to going into a nursing home saying, you know, I want to be dignified. I don't want to be running around with some idiot. Um, go out the window. And then you're forced to have your family decide, do I want to live by those things that I believe my mother would have honored? Um, Evelyn Tenenbaum was like me when she wrote her first, uh, her first article. And we both have a bias toward best interests. But then she examined it further and she said, the family's a game changer. It's important for you to look at the best interests of the family as well. So if it's really going to hurt the family to allow this relationship, then you have to take that into consideration. I know it makes it tough for you. There are no black and white rules. Do you often run into family members who think that the, the romancer in the nursing home is someone after their parents' money? We saw that yeah. Um, yes, that is in, among the list of things that happen with family. And I'm, I should have brought that up earlier. Um, a concern about family inheritance when there's a new relationship. Yeah, we do see that. Uh, but people don't really often admit to that. So it's probably an underlying thing that's there. Yes. Have to share inheritance. Other questions? Yeah, only if you get married. But there could be the buying of gifts, expense that the family considers gifts that are too expensive. Yep. Um, okay, briefly. So I think we've got something exciting coming up in a few minutes. Um, so I promised that we'd talk about policy. Again, I don't think, yes, Paul. That was a quick no. Is that law? Yes. In order to be married, you have to be competent to understand um, what you're 
capacity to totally understand what you're getting into, Papa. Never. <laughs> 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 It could be competent at one hour and not so much the next. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, please. Oh, later on. Okay. You have to wait on the edge of your seat. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, DPOAs. Um, Uh, I don't know. I, I can't answer those questions. That can be your assignment over lunch. Get your iPhones out, find out the answer, come back later. That's what a teacher would do. Okay, um, just briefly about policy. For me, it's not so much what's in the policy, it's that you have one. So that when people come to the facility, their family members are aware that there's a, they're coming to a home where people honor residents' needs. And so if you have one, it has to be broad enough to encompass just about anything you're going to have. I, I like kind of these, I, I think this is again from the Hebrew home. Create a formal policy that gives rights to residents for sexual expression. But you got to have it open to cognitive impairments. Develop a staff education program. I think that's very significant. It has to go in your policy. And the thing that happens with staff policy, uh, training programs is they get done once, and then you have turnover, and they never get done again. So there needs to be something in staff orientation about sexuality. Um, modify the physical environment to facilitate resident sexuality and intimacy, and we talked about that, and implement family orientation. So here's the Hebrew home policy. Um, residents have right to privacy and to sexual and intimate relationships. Staff and facility have specific responsibilities. Sexual expression may be between or among residents or may include visitors from outside the home. Residents have a right to access and or obtain for private use materials with legal but sexually explicit content and to the greatest extent possible. Residents have the right to access facilities, most notably private space in support of sexual expression. Um, so uh, other policies are maybe not quite as liberal and really require a lot of um, acceptance by family members, so they would put a caveat after all of these as accepted by family members. So unfortunately that kind of is the sticky wicket in the, the whole thing is how to get family members to be more approachable about this. So that, no it doesn't. Oh why it does have a caveat. It did. It did have a caveat for dementia in the first piece. Yeah. Okay, so that is the end of my comments and my time with you. Um, this afternoon, I'm part of a panel discussion, but I believe we have four minutes for any questions. You've been good at asking questions throughout. I love that. That's a way I love to teach. So 
Uh, I would give you a 4.7 on a five-point scale. Okay, anything else? If not, we'll move on to the next piece.